I would invite you to turn or scroll in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. We're in a short series on the advent of Christ. Last week we looked at the genealogy of the first 17 verses of Matthew. This morning we will be in verses 18 to 25 of chapter 1. Looking at the birth of a king, or you could subtitle this, How Jesus Got His Name. Matthew 1, we'll begin reading in verse 18. Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his Mary, mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm fighting a major cold at the end of this week, so we'll see how this goes. Well, to this point, the process of naming children for Liz and me has been quite an adventure. We have two daughters, and both of them have proved a great exercise in both personality, opinion, as well as in creativity. Now, you would think with all the names that there are in the English language that it wouldn't be hard to choose two. But for some reason for us, that's proved to be difficult. In fact, I can remember before... Before Grayson was born, driving down the road and we had a name chosen. And I can remember the moment where I was saying the name in my mind and we were driving together and I said, I cannot say that name the rest of my life to call my daughter. And so I just said, we can't name her that. And she said, I am so thankful you said that. I felt the same way. But it had taken us so long to decide that neither one of us really wanted to verbalize, I don't really like that. And as you know, we have another opportunity to name another child, this time a son. And so we have another chance to go through the naming process. Well, for us, we've had some son names chosen for a while, so I think we're good on that. But there are times when I wish God would just show up and say, name your child this. It'd be a lot easier. Well, that's what happened pretty much here. Jesus got his name and God named him through an angel. And so the process of Jesus getting his name was really a pretty simple one. But it's also a story filled with significance. Well, I imagine you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 1. I would like you to do this. Turn in your Bible all the way to the very beginning of your Bible, to the very first book of your Bible, the very first page of your Bible, to Genesis 1. 
Genesis 1. I'd like you to look there at the top of that first page. And what's the word you see there at the top of the page? It's the word Genesis. It's the title of the book. Well, if you flip over a page or so, the Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, you see this word. These are the generations. Okay, that word generations is the same word, Genesis, that you see at the top of the page. It's the reason the book has its name, Genesis. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, you see the same word again. This is the book of the Genesis, generations of Adam. Okay, now... See that? Now turn your Bible back to Matthew chapter 1 and look in verse 1 for me. It says there, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And again, here we have the word Genesis. So what's Matthew doing all through here? He's connecting dots for us. He's demonstrating to us, it's not an accident, Matthew didn't choose these words by accident. He's demonstrating to us that the Bible, God's story, is all one story from beginning to end. And now if you come down to verse 18, you see this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That word birth is the very same word that we see in verse 1, the genealogy. The genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. There are different ways that Matthew could have said this, but he chose a way that demonstrates to us that the Bible is God's story from beginning to end. And whether it's Genesis, Matthew, or Revelation, Jesus Christ stands at the center of this because Jesus Christ is the God-man who came to save sinners. Jesus Christ is the God-man who came to save sinners. And as we look at this text this morning, we're going to consider it in three points, the first of which in verse 18 is God's grand story. God's grand story in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. You may remember from last week that Matthew carefully laid out the line of Jesus Christ, and he did this to prove that Jesus is the legal heir to the throne of David. And so with that history laid, with those 17 verses, he gets right to the main point. The birth of the king and the birth of Jesus Christ, the son of David, took place in this way. And so we have this birth, this Genesis connecting us back to verse 1, the Genesis, and that's all the way back to Genesis, where we see Genesis over and over and over again. The generations, the line of the seed, the one, the coming one, the coming king who would rescue people from their sin. You see, this is a record of the origins of Jesus Christ. And the first section of chapter 1 is a reference to the historical origins of Jesus, meaning that it looks back through time at what came before him. And then when we come here, it's another reference to the origins, the genesis of Jesus. But it's a reference to his birth in real time, what happened when he was born. And so Matthew is both implicitly and explicitly making this point that God's word is one story. The Old Covenant marks the beginning of Jesus, the coming Messianic King. And Matthew is saying, I am telling you the same story. I'm coming to you with the same message, the message that has been preached to you from the beginning. And so we see here immediately 
the third word of this verse, now the birth, tells us that God planned every detail of Scripture as one grand story. And that story is the story of Jesus Christ, the promised coming Messiah King. Whether it's Matthew, whether it's the book of Moses, the first five books of our Bible, pointing us forward to the fact that we need a perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that can truly cleanse us from our sins, or that we need a perfect priest, a priest who can offer one eternal sacrifice on behalf of the people of God, and it will never need to be offered again. The book of Moses, the books of Moses point forward to the coming perfect priest and perfect sacrifice, or whether it's coming to the historical books, the books that tell the stories of the kings, line after line, king after king, failing and pointing to the fact that we need a perfectly just, righteous, eternal king, one who can rule perfectly for all time, and that coming king is Jesus. They all point forward to the coming perfect king, Jesus. Or then we come to the end of the Old Testament, to the prophets. And prophet after prophet comes and says, Repent! Follow the Lord! Repent! Follow the way of the Lord! Repent! 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 Believe what God has said! And the people do not listen. They point forward to a coming, perfect, final prophet who will utterly, righteously, and perfectly declare the word of the Lord and say, Repent! Believe the Gospel! The Gospel it is here, and I am He, the promised one, the promised prophet, the one who would fully and finally declare the word of the Lord. My name is Jesus, and I came to save my people from their sins. And so when Matthew comes here in one verse, and he says, The birth... He's pointing to the fact that ever since the very beginning, the books of Moses, all the way through the prophets, he's pointing out the fact that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, the king, the one who would rescue his people fully and finally from their sins, the one where everyone else had failed, and Jesus will not fail. He is the point of the written revelation of God, he is the point of the created revelation of God, and he is the point of our lives today. And so that's why we say when we gather here, we gather to lift up the name of Jesus and magnify Him and point people to Him. Because God's Word is like a bright red arrow pointing to Christ. And so we come and say, God, let us be little arrows and point people to Jesus Christ. The Messiah King. The promised Redeemer. The one who since the very first words of Scripture has been promised. And He is here. You see, it's all about Jesus Christ and it all points to Jesus. And like the Word of God, our lives should point like bright red arrows to the glory of the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. You might think you're here today to see your friends. You might think you're here today to be encouraged. You might think you're here today because you have to be and your parents made you come. You might think you're here today because you didn't have something better to do or you don't really even know why you ended up here. But brothers and sisters, the reason we exist and the reason we gather for worship today is to point to Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, who is worthy to receive honor and blessing and glory and might and power and wisdom. And we declare His glory today. That is why we are here. That is why Matthew wrote this book. That is the very reason for our existence. So we gather and we declare the glory of Jesus, the Lamb of God who came to save sinners. You might find yourself here today searching, looking. And if you're here searching, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, let me encourage you. Take the word of God 
read it and ask God to show you Christ. Ask God to open your eyes to the one that this book reveals. To the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. You see, if there's one greatest story ever told, it's God's redemption story. People who could not help themselves rescued by a Redeemer, the only one who could. So Matthew 1, 18-23 is the record of Jesus' life as a baby. It's the beginning of the answer. Who is this one? It is Jesus. We said that Matthew relies on, leans on the Old Testament. He's drawing this line through Scripture. We saw that how he did that with the genealogy. We see how he does that with his very word choice. But beyond that, if you look, and we're just going to track very quickly through here, if you look through the rest of chapter 1 and 2, you see that Matthew does not have his own agenda here. If you track through here, you see some words that are quotations of the Old Testament. There's a series of quotations from the Old Testament. And these quotations drive the birth narrative in Matthew 1 and 2. So look at Matthew 1.23. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Quoting Isaiah 7.14. Or if you look a little bit further in Matthew 2, verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Micah 5.2. Matthew 2, verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. A quotation of Hosea 11.1. Matthew 2, verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. A quotation of Jeremiah 31.15. So if you're tempted at all to doubt what we've been saying to this point, that the word of God with its poetry, with its history, with its prophecy, with its narratives, is one story. Matthew makes this point repeatedly in many different ways in these two chapters. Whether it's a genealogy the line of the kings, whether it's specific word choices, or whether it's a series of tracing quotations from the Old Testament, he's making the point that this book is about the arrival of Jesus the King. If you were to begin at Genesis and count every word in your Bible to through to Revelation, you find that there are more than 800,000 words in your Bible and every one of them is meant to highlight the fact that Jesus is the Savior, the Redeemer, the King. So we come this morning declaring that Jesus Christ is the God-man, the promised one who came to save sinners. It's God's story. It all points to one person, Jesus. And now let's consider in the midst of this story what humans see. What humans see, verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. (coughs) So we've said... God is orchestrating this this grand story from beginning to end. And yet, what can we see? We can see just 
bits and pieces of what God is doing. John Piper said a few years ago, and I thought he said it pretty beautifully, God may be doing 10,000 things in your life at one time, and you may see two or three of them. That's for an individual. And when you magnify that exponentially in time and through time for all the people of God and for all the creation of God, multiply 10,000 by infinity and you begin to see that we can only see the edges of God's ways, the beginning of what he is doing. Our finite minds, our finite minds cannot comprehend the ways of the Lord. Well, sometimes we don't see what God is doing because we're simply blinded by sin. But other times we're unaware just because we're humans. We just can't see because we're people. And I think that's exactly what's going on with Joseph here. So yes, we know because God's word declares that all have sinned, that Joseph is a sinner. But Matthew doesn't really highlight the sinfulness of Joseph here. He goes out of his way to highlight the fact that Joseph is both a spiritually mature and gracious man. But Joseph, who is a just man, didn't grasp the fullness of the plans of God. Look back in verses 18 and 19. So what do we know? End of verse 18. We know that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. What did Joseph know? Look again at verse 18. Joseph knew that she was found to be with child. You see, we have some clues that make this easy for us to accept. Easy for us to process. My wife is expecting a child. It would be a surprise to me if that happened and I had no clue how it could have happened. See, all Joseph knows is that his betrothed, his fiance, his beloved Mary is pregnant. See, there's a big difference between what Joseph knew and what we know through the revelation of the Word of God. Well, if you look, verse 19 says that Joseph is her husband, while verse 18 says that they are betrothed. <coughs> so what's going on here? Well, for us today, breaking off an engagement doesn't have any particular legal ramifications. You can pretty much just break off an engagement. There's no legal bond. But in Joseph and Mary's day, there was, there was a legal binding agreement that must be broken in order for an engagement to be broken. A pledge to be married was legal binding to the point that only divorce could break that pledge. So the wedding ceremony hadn't taken place yet. They're still betrothed, but they were considered by their culture and by the law legally bound together. And we know as well that they hadn't actually been together physically because verse 18 says that this happened before they came together. So this can't be Joseph's kid. So imagine if you're Joseph and as, and as God's word says, you're a just man, you're a God-fearing, righteous man. How would you respond to the news that your betrothed, your legally bound wife, is pregnant. I think you'd respond exactly like Joseph did in verse 18. Being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
I find it interesting that in the church, in our verbiage, much gets made of Mary and very little made of Joseph. And I understand this because Mary is the virgin birth. She's the virgin who birthed Jesus. But we have, we have, we have different accounts of the birth of Christ, but we have two main birth narratives in the gospel, one in Luke and one in Matthew. Luke makes much of Mary, but Matthew actually makes much of Joseph. He makes a big deal out of the one that Jesus is Joseph's legal heir and this legal heir to the throne of David. He makes much of the character of Joseph here in this passage. Matthew emphasizes the role of Joseph. Verse 19 says that he is just. The word literally means righteous. It means that he was a man submitted to the law of God and committed to keeping it. Because Joseph was righteous and God-fearing, he could no longer marry this woman. Because she had been unfaithful. She was an adulteress. If he married her, it would seem on his part, not just that he was being gracious and accepting of her, but that he was admitting guilt in the act. He would be admitting, in the eyes of the culture, that he and Mary had been immoral together before they were permitted to be together. So Joseph is a just man. But Matthew also gives us a picture of the fact that Joseph isn't just just and righteous. He also gives us a picture of his heart of mercy and grace. He was unwilling to put her to shame. If you're an adulteress in Israelite society, what's the penalty for that? Stoning. Joseph could have rightly led Mary outside the village and been the one to cast the first stone, and he could have justly done it, and she could have been killed, executed on the spot. You see, the full weight of the law, where it brought to bear, would at the least have meant public censure and shame and could have meant her execution. Public shameful divorce. Joseph said, I had nothing to do with this. This isn't my kid. I don't know. It's the woman. He could very easily have done that and very righteously in the eyes of the law have done that. It was Joseph's right. But the law also allowed for a more gracious response. And that response could be a divorce, a private divorce, but with just two witnesses. And it could be kept very quiet and hush-hush. And so, Matthew here tells us Joseph is committed to submitting to the law of God, but in such a way that would allow him as a human being to be as maximally gracious and merciful as he could. Fully submitted to the law and also compassionate within the bounds of the law. Well, from a human perspective, Mary's pregnancy, no doubt, was at least an inconvenience. More than that, it was shameful. And so the question confronting Joseph now is whether all that he's been taught, all the relationships he has, all the history of the people of Israel, all of this weighing against him is whether in the face of that, he will have the faith, humility, and courage to listen to the word of the Lord, to respond obediently to what God says now, which seems in opposition to everything he's ever known. Humanly speaking, this is a disaster. It's a disaster for Mary. It's a disaster for Joseph. It's a disaster for the baby. 
It's a disaster for their entire family. This is not a time to overreact, to react quickly. Well, how does Joseph respond? Even in this dark time, Joseph acted, the text tells us, wisely and deliberately. You see, it's not just the dream. Because no doubt Mary is pleading her innocence. Verse 20 tells us that there's some time here. As he considered these things. I really don't think it was just that out of the blue. I mean, there are times when out of the blue the angel of the Lord appears. I have no doubt that Joseph, being a just man, who loved the Lord, loved his wife, prayed to God for wisdom. And asked God, help me, I don't know what to do. It seems like I must divorce her, but God, help me, I can't see a way forward. And in that moment, in the midst of his wrestling, in the midst of his praying, in the midst of his deliberation, God appears. It's a little bit like what we read in James. We looked at James last year that Elijah is held up as a model for prayer. And it's almost like we think Elijah prayed and got answered and sent rain. But when you read the text in the Old Testament, you see that Elijah prayed and that he 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 prayed and, he prayed and got answered. We think, God, why don't, why don't you work like this? God, why can't it be easy? You know, easy like it was for Joseph. Why is it always so hard for me? Why can't you just appear and tell me how it is? Why can't you just show up and tell us what to name our baby? And God has ordained means for His people by which His Spirit will work among them. And our problem is we do not avail ourselves. We do not claim the ordinary means of God's grace to us. We aren't people who labor on our knees. We aren't people who press and persevere long through problems. We're people that the headline is this one day and it's this next and we can be equally passionate about both and off of one passion and onto the next quickly. Even in the midst of this apparent disaster, God is at work. And the way that God worked was through the life of his servant, Joseph. Not the birth father of Jesus. One who, frankly, culturally, societally had nothing to gain. And who, in many ways, history has forgotten. But he considered these things and asked God for help. And in the midst of this, God shows up. Whether it's God's story throughout history, or whether it's one small family in a little village called Nazareth, we can only see a little bit of what God is doing. And that little bit prejudices us based on our perception of what's going on. We experience a trial and we see, God, why would you do this to me? And we can't see the grand working of God in this trial in our lives, in those around us, in our children to come for generations, in our church. We can only see a little bit. And so we reflect on this little bit and we think we have the right to say to God, why would you do this to me? And we're just small and ignorant 
And we don't have a clue what God is up to. But we're arrogant enough to assume that we have the right to ask God, who planned it all from the very beginning and made it work, what He's doing to us. And we don't have a clue. And that clue that we don't have is why we need the Word of God and the people of God to help us see a bigger perspective outside of ourselves. It's why when you're in the midst of this trial, you're down, your woe is me, you're complaining, you need to someone to say, but have you considered the grace of God in your life? And these evidences of grace. And you say, I don't see it. Look what's going on. And it's like, have you considered the fact that you don't even have to pray for your daily bread? You have it? I'm not talking about praying for your bills. But I'm, praying, I'm talking about praying for something to eat. Have you thought about the fact that every breath you have is a gift from God? And if God just took oxygen away, you would die instantly? Have you thought about the fact that what you, did, what you deserve is eternal condemnation for your sin, judgment under the anger of God, of a righteous and holy God against sin? And instead, you get grace? Or have you thought about the fact that there are actually, believe it or not, believe it or not, there are people in life with bigger problems than you have? You see, we get so focused on our little world and our little place we don't see what God is doing. And what we need to do at times like that is to stop, consider these things, and ask God to help us to adjust our perspective. He does that through His Word, and He also does that through the people of God around us. If you're a kid here, God has given you your parents to help you see this. Sometimes you see your parents as the problem. But they're actually God's answer to adjusting your perspective on the sovereignty of grace of God and, your, and grace of God in your life. Or if you're here and you've cut yourself off from fellowship, from close fellowship in a body of Christ, God has given the body of Christ to help the people of Christ see what God is doing. Or to have faith to persevere even when they can't see what God is doing. You see, God needs to adjust the perspective in the midst of trials. Wisdom of the body of Christ helps us see what, what, what we can't see for ourselves. So what humans see is just a little slice, just a little picture. But what we really need to see is what God is doing. What God is doing in verses 20 to 25. But as Joseph, verse 20, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. 
So verse 20 introduces us to something that's pretty common here in chapters 1 and 2, and really throughout Matthew's narrative. God appearing to someone and directing that person in a dream. This happens four times in Matthew chapter 2. The angel of the Lord literally means messenger. It's a messenger from God himself. And this person is sent with a message for Joseph. This message is both comforting and pretty sobering. It's comforting that he says, don't fear. It's comforting to have God say that to you. (laughs) But it's really sobering. Because Joseph had considered these things and prayed for wisdom. And he had resolved to divorce her, to put her away quietly. And God says, Joseph, don't do that. Marry her. Whoa. God, don't you know what this will mean for me? God, don't you know that this means my name will be mud? Not just Mary's? I'm saying, yeah, I'm the guilty one. Yeah, it was us. We see Joseph's character more fully revealed in verses 24 and 25 because after receiving this word from the Lord, he responds in obedience. Though this required great faith to believe God and great courage to obey God. Well, what's the secret to Joseph's courage? It may be a supernatural gifting of courage from God's Spirit. But I think it's more likely that it's because he was a righteous, God-fearing man and he feared the Lord more than he feared the opinions of those around him. Have you ever felt what it's like to be paralyzed by fear? For the opinions of the people around you to be really big? For God to feel really small? Your friends at school to say anything righteous or God-fearing, you'd be scoffed at. Or you're a mom and you're raising your kids and rather than just responding graciously and obediently to the revelation from God, you are paralyzed by the opinions of those around you and you can't even love your own kids because you're worried about pleasing everyone else. Or maybe you're a man or woman with a career, but it's not the career you pictured. And so you always kind of hang your head when you say what you do. You see, the fear of man can paralyze us. It lays a snare, Proverbs says. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Perfect love casts out fear. People who know they have been deeply loved by God fear and reverence God. And the opinions of the people around them, even a community intent on ostracizing your family for the decision you're about to make, begin to diminish the importance because you answer to the creator of the universe. And so this leads us to then the virgin birth. So this passage is the explicit fulfillment of a prophecy I mentioned before, Isaiah 7.14, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. We call it the virgin birth because Mary was a virgin, meaning she'd never been with a man. We'll look back for a moment at verse 16. This is the end of the genealogy. So if we read through this chapter, chapter 1, we see the father of the father of the father of the father of the father of. But not in verse 16. Verse 16 
Matthew goes out of his way to say it differently when he comes to Joseph. He says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. He's very explicitly pointing out that Jesus is not physically descended from Joseph. So when we get here to verse 18, we see that Jesus was born of a virgin. Matthew clearly states it two times here in 18 and verse 20, that that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So it's important for us to understand the importance of this, because between verses 16 and verse 23, Matthew makes the same point four times. Jesus is God's birth son, not Joseph's. So Jesus is Joseph's legal heir, but not Joseph's seed. He is the seed of God himself. I want to take just a, a minute and talk about the general way I interpret Scripture because of things like this. Because some people can't accept that this could be possible. Some people can't accept that the Holy Spirit could give birth to a child in, in a human body. I always take the text of the Word of God in a straightforward manner unless the text itself tells me not to. Unless there's a reason in the in the text itself or in the, in the genre of the text that tells me that this is figurative, it's illustrative. So therefore, whenever we come to a miracle passage in the Old or New Testament, I'm always accepting it as straightforward truth from God. Well, one reason this is important is because the Bible is one story, remember? All the dominoes are connected. So what do I take out? The, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ, Elijah, David, Moses... I can't just pick and choose because you knock over one domino and soon the whole thing begins to crumble. But beyond that, if I'm choosing which dominoes to remove or knock over, who's sovereign? Who's choosing what's true and what's not? Do I get to say, I accept this and don't accept that? You see, because... I don't want to set myself in a position to decide what is true and what's not. Rather, I would rather submit myself to what God declares to be true. So that being said, let's, let's talk about the theological significance of the virgin birth. Why do we need the virgin birth? Well, you have this problem. It's called sin. And sin, because it's against an eternal God, has an eternal consequence. And therefore, the person who can pay the penalty for that sin, the death for that sin must be an eternal being. Well, who can pay an eternal price? Only God. But God can't pay the price for humans justly. Only a human can bear the human penalty for sin. And only a human can die. God can never die. God is eternal. And so it's in the fusion, the, the, in, in Jesus' being, someone who is fully God, eternal, able to bear the penalty and pay the penalty for sin, and fully human, a fit sacrifice for sin. It's only in the union of those two complete beings in one person that the penalty for our sin can be fully met. He had to be human so he could die. And he had to be God so he could pay the penalty. The virgin birth brothers and sisters, is absolutely essential to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without it, we have no gospel. 
If we don't have in Jesus Christ the theo-God-anthropic man union, the union of God and man, we do not have a Savior at all. We either have a God who can only judge or a man who can only die. But in Jesus Christ, the union of His two natures, His divine and human nature means that He could both bear our penalty and pay it in full. The virgin birth is no light doctrine. It's not something to be sniffed at, and it's why Matt says it four times here. Jesus Christ is conceived of the Holy Spirit. You see, any human being can die, but only Jesus could die, raise himself from the dead, and pay the full penalty for our sin. Matthew gives us some clues here to why Jesus came. He gives us two names. Emmanuel, which reveals to us Jesus' identity. So it's these two names that really clue us into the crux of this passage. Verse 23 says, They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God's with us. His identity is God with us. Think about that for just a minute. What a difference from the Old Covenant, from Moses, who on Mount Sinai saw the edges of God's glory and the people could not look at his face because it was too bright. No one could be in the presence of God. This is why John says it this way in John chapter 1. Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory which we could never see before. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he goes on, he says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. We sit here on this side of the cross, and we have seen God. Oh, not we, but we, the people of God, have seen God in person. Peter, James, and John, the other nine disciples, the Apostle Paul, a special group of women, and thousands of other people. God with us. What greater blessing can God give His people than Himself? God with us. He gives us another name here, Jesus And here we see Jesus' mission. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, literally means Yahweh saves. The New Testament form of the Old Testament name, Joshua. Joshua in Hebrew is Yahashua. Yahweh, Yah, is salvation. Yahweh is the covenant name of the true God of the Bible. He has been revealing himself in redemption throughout the word of God. And he very clearly says he has come here to save his people from their sins. The name of the Son of God defines his mission. And it still rings with the gracious love of God. Jesus, the Lord, saves. Well, what does this mean for us today? Yes, it means that God saves from sin. But a God who can deliver his people from sin is a God who can deliver his people from any problem. A God who can save us from our greatest need. Every problem in the world today, whether it's poverty, hunger, sickness, crime, racism, prejudice of any kind, death itself, all those things are a result of sin. You see, when Adam and Eve broke God's law in the garden, they shattered the image of God in the people of God. They broke it. They broke God's perfectly good creation. And those cracks 
that began at Eden begin to widen and widen and widen until they run through all of creation and the cracks, the brokenness is all around us. That problem is too big, too great for any mere human being to set right. The person who can set that right must be God-man. Only God could correct that. You see, movements to end world hunger, poverty, hate crimes, they're good things. But they are futile. Apart from the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, from the revolutionary world-changing message that Jesus came to save His people from their sins. You see, we don't need to just be rescued from the temporary effects of sin, poverty, sickness, hunger. We need to be rescued from sin itself and from the wrath of God against sin. You can't do that with an ad campaign. You can't do that with a march on Washington. You can't do that with a food pantry. You can only do that with the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ. He came to save His people from their sins. And I'm not saying these things don't matter. Don't hear me say that. I'm just saying they're not enough. They are insufficient in and of themselves. Apart from Jesus, the one who came to save His people from sin, all of these things, no matter what your cause is, those causes won't do you one lick of good apart from Jesus. Jesus Christ, the God-man who came to save sinners. So we've spent this time looking at what God is doing. That's right. But I want to look now as we close at the last phrase of verse 21 again. He will save his people from their sins. From their sins. You see, Matthew is here telling us that we're all guilty before God. We are the sinners. We are the reason Jesus died. And this should produce in us two responses. Repentance, turning from our sin because Jesus died to save us from it. And worship at a God who would humble himself for our sins. The verse Gary quoted a little while ago, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will be saved and never perish. And He did that in spite of the fact that we are people of sin. And so in closing today, if you don't know Jesus, the God-man, the only one who can rescue you from sin, my encouragement to you is to do this. To turn from your sin and run to Him. And he will rescue you. And he's the only one who can. Let's go to God now as the people of God or as people coming to know God and respond to the word of God in repentance and faith. Let's talk to God now. God, we come to you today and we do respond in repentance. 
We are sinners not worthy of being rescued. But we also respond in worship because Jesus came to save his people from their sins. God, thank you for Jesus, the God-man, born of woman, born under the law to save those who are under the law. And God, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know him, that they would be moved to trust him. And for those of us who do, God, I pray that you will help us worship him and adore him, Christ the Lord. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we come to the end of every service at Morningstar and we close our services the same way by celebrating communion. Communion basically means it's it's body together. And I love that picture because what the word word of God tells us is that the body of Christ was broken to make us one in Christ. And so as we take communion today, I'd encourage you to do this. I don't want you to look around and stare at one another because that will make you feel uncomfortable. But sense and feel and remember that the people around you, that Jesus died to make us one. To make us one body in Jesus. And so as we worship, let's worship mindfully the fact that He has called us all together to worship Him. If you're here and you know God by faith in Jesus and you've been baptized into the church, we invite you to partake in this meal with us together. You don't have to be a member of Morningstar Church to do that. This is something we take seriously and worshipfully, but we do it gladly because it means that we're rescued sinners. Jesus came to rescue his people from their sins. And so as we do this, we'll sing, we'll stand, we'll file out the outside aisles, and then back up the middle, we'll all eat together at the end. Would you stand and we will sing together? Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin mother and child, holy infant so Silent.
night, holy night, shepherds quake at the On the night when Jesus was betrayed, when he had broken bread and given thanks, he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.